Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Stefan. And I am Paul. Can we call this the Paul cast? No. Mm, yes. No. Is that because is that because you think that's the I'd be, be too much of a, an ego stroking on my on my part to call it the Paul cast? Yeah, because this isn't all about you, and um, you know, I don't want people to think that's a, that this is just you know all your you being Paul. Right, that's a good point. It's all just like your podcast, basically. Right, because uh, you already have your own podcast too. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. it's, well, it's story time with Paul Dora. That's a good point. That's right. Um, so again, this is our ongoing series called uh, hashtag SWT Confused, uh, because that's just what we're up to right now. Yes. And today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about venues, uh, because two of our last shows uh, were in new venues, and that's always exciting for us, in part because it's actually how our, our show has grown. People invite their friends to their house for this weird thing that's happening, and then more people, more people learn about us. But also because each new venue brings a whole slightly different vibe to the whole experience. Yes, I and I'd like to sort of say that it, we... Um at the very beginning, I I don't remember exactly, but it, it wasn't, it, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody about this. Uh, they were asking me, at, uh, we were at an event the other night and uh, somebody was asking me all about, you know, the, how I was saying, oh, it's, it's so important. The, um, the doing this in people's houses, we didn't realize how important this was going to be. And it was almost like from the beginning, it was, a, I don't want to say an arbitrary decision, but just like, oh, we, let's just do this. We didn't know really what was going to happen. And it was like, let's just do this at your apartment. We'll, it, we'll see what happens. Like there wasn't necessarily a big theory behind it at the beginning. No, and not only was it not a theory, it was, it was specifically to sort of solve a couple really logistical problems, yeah. which was we wanted to have alcohol but didn't want to charge people for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we wanted to have a space that we had control over. Yeah. Uh, and so houses just seemed like a pretty easy solution to this problem rather than anything beyond anything deeper, I guess. Mm. But I, I will say that pretty much from that first time, uh, whether we recognized it or not, uh, immediately was that it did become and still is just like the one of the most important pieces uh, to this puzzle of, you know, specifically of the kind of stories that we are asking people to come and uh, share with well, us. Well, and I think we actually learned that pretty quickly because the second stories event was actually at your well, party room in your condo. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. And, and that sort of didn't have the exact same vibe. Mm -hmm. And we realized at that point that maybe maybe there was something about being in my apartment that, that actually impacted it. Mm -hmm. And so we went back to houses and we have a couple shows uh, that, that are not in houses from time to time, but, but generally speaking, yeah, the house is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, what, uh, what, what do you feel for you personally? What is it about doing it in uh, these houses that, that is, that is important for you? So I think there are a couple specific usefulness things about it, right? People are far, I think people are more respectful uh, in houses. I think people sort of treat it as if they're in someone's house that they know. And, and so there's, we don't have issues like talking, mm -hmm. uh, which happens a lot at bars mm -hmm. uh, in other venues. And, and just to interject there at our last event, I was really um, excited and happy about the um, 
proud of our audience because uh, somebody started a story and there was somebody uh, at the back who sort of started talking. And before anybody, any one of us could do anything, like half the crowd just turned around and, and shushed them. Yeah. yeah, it was very effective shushing. Yes. Um, but I think there's a... So there's some logistical piece, and also I love the fact that at the end of the event, it becomes a bit of a, uh, a house party kind of vibe, mm-hmm. uh, which means that people are far more likely to talk to each other. The community aspect is really important of it, I think. Uh, yeah, so I would second both of those things because uh, the, the, the party thing, I think what's a little bit different is that people don't, sometimes when you're at an event, at a bar or an event space or something like that, you you kind of once it's done like the thing that you're there for is done it's kind of like oh we just go home like we go now yeah it's, we it's leave. over it's out. over yeah. where i i like that um especially the last one because there was uh, a, a a number of um very intense stories and i think it, it was an opportunity for everyone to just kind of talk about that stuff hmm. you know um it was it, it was just it was great it's great to see but um for me i think what uh, to add to your list is for both the audience and the performers again i'll just reference our last um, last event which was uh which would be the 10,000 leagues november event yeah. yes it was so packed that literally there was like you could just like bend down and touch a, 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 the audience. Like yeah, they right. were right literally at your feet. And I think that, that it, it, it removes the separation mm. from, from these things. So you're not even speaking. We don't use microphones uh, or anything like that. And it's just you're, for the audience, they are right there in the room with the person, like right in front of them. And for the people sharing stories also, um, it's just that having the, that audience right there, it just, you know, I think it does, um, the, the connection there yeah, makes a big it, difference. It's a more intimate space for sure. Yes. You're not on stage or anything like that. Yeah. And I, and I think the, the last part of it that matters to me about it, which is something I've come to appreciate more, uh, as we've, as we've carried on is that houses themselves or homes themselves hold stories Every you know, in a venue, often they are decorated to be decorated, uh, but houses and homes that are lived in, the things on their walls aren't just things on their walls. Mm-hmm. You know, the things on their walls um, are 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 meaningful. Are, are then they themselves stories? It, it it adds a depth to the space. Uh, you know, for example, at Ten Thousand Leagues, um, one of the storytellers whose house it also happened to be was telling a story which included a bit about. Uh, paintings that he was that he was looking that he at one point was looking to sell and he had uh, he had one of those paintings or one of those prints actually specifically was on the wall directly beside him mm-hmm. and and i think this sort of i think it brings the audience further into the experience by putting them in a space that really is i think you can feel that it's mm-hmm. this, I, I really think you can actually feel the depth of of, of stories or thoughts that go into a space or a, an event um and i think that really matters Right, and and um, so that is something that has stayed the same, the venue, and it's only you know like we're talking about it's grown in in its importance, but we've been uh, adding some things um, over this sort of last um, you know few months. Um, we would like to just take the opportunity first to just say 
in terms of like what we're doing, you know, say podcast wise and everything is we have added, you know, go, you can read this stuff on the blog. So we're trying to post more things on there. And, um, we have a photographer, so we're going to be, you know, we've been posting galleries so you can uh, see, get a little insight into, um, what is happening at the event, but we've also added some, some other things. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that we sort of start to try to start doing in this, uh, this season, shall we say, uh, is we sort of asking ourselves the question, what can we do to sort of increase the, the thought or the, the depth of these experiences? And one of the things we thought of was what about including art very, very, very lightly. I, you know, I don't think, I, I don't think we want to go out and, and sort of redecorate every space as we walk into. Cause again, I think the actual fact that it feels like a home is important. Um, but what we did is we asked, uh, a, a, our artist, uh, Maximilian Suro is, uh, I hope I didn't fully, his, his Parisian last name is, uh, uh, slightly, uh, more French than I'm familiar with. If he did, Max, uh, uh, tweet at us. Yes. Hashtag SWDT confused. Yes. <laughs> Again, it seems like it would work. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, he's just going to be wondering why we got his name wrong. Um, but Max uh, is, an, um, is a fantastic uh, artist, and he provided with us a um, really a, a halo piece that's actually part of an ongoing artistic um, uh, it's actually it's part of a, a series. Uh, he's he's actually been one. This series actually is currently up, I believe, uh, in his home uh, in his in his home country of Mexico, uh, which he and it's a, of, of a series of different of haloed uh, personas, and and so he actually created a physical art manifestation of this sort of idea of like a halo for the storytellers themselves, and it's and it, the idea is really just to sort of add that extra piece of. Um, of, of thought or of depth to the, to the experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so if you want to know about Max or his entire Halo project, uh, his website uh, will be linked in the show post as well. And, uh, if you want to see it, we'll, um, uh, you can, it's a, we're going to be posting or, or we have by this, um, recording, uh, posting a, uh, you know, gallery of this past event. And so, you'll be able to see it. Yeah. It, it, it's really photogenic too. Oh man. Yeah. It's <laughs> it great. Looks, looks really great on, on, uh, in the pictures. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, as a part of, as part of that depth, uh, we're, we're doing a, we're doing a flashback, uh, to, um, to, to Brianne, who you may remember from, if you are, if you've given, if you've dove deep, into our into our podcasts, uh, you will remember Brienne was a co-host. Uh, she, you know, started this thing with us, mm -hmm. uh, moved away, but was able to come back uh, for a for our October show. Yeah, she happened to be sort of uh, passing through, and um, you know, we obviously we uh, said, well, we hope that you will also bring a story as you're passing through, and she uh, she did, and it was great to you know have her back, uh, just like. You know, it's just like old school. Yeah, it's old times. Old times. And uh, she was there and she told the story. And we're just going to, that's what we, the story we're going to, you're going to be hearing today. So why don't we let Brianne take it away? I haven't woken up to an alarm in months. On a typical day, I wake up naturally, froth up my coffee with coconut milk and collagen peptides, 
and settle down on the couch to do a crossword puzzle with my husband, Adam. If you're friends with me on Facebook, which perhaps four to five of you are, uh, you'll know that I've been rounding up articles and essays that will help to explain specific social justice terms. Since August, I've done about 45 roundups as my after coffee ritual. Adam usually makes me lunch. Fresh eggs and vegetables from local farms or leftover grass-fed beef from dinner the night before. At about 2 p.m., the sunlight starts to hit the hammock in our backyard, and so I might head out there with a book to soak up some vitamin D. Maybe Adam runs to Home Depot or spends the afternoon in the shop that he's building in our garage. Um, when the hammock starts to cool down, I head back to the couch, pick up the packs or one of the many vape pens that Adam has received from Ease, a marijuana delivery service that only talks to you through an app, and I settle in for some back catalog episodes of Supernatural. About two years ago, I read the book Your Money or Your Life. It's a sort of self-help book that teaches you to reduce spending, optimize income, and invest wisely with the goal of financial independence or early retirement. It sounded incredible. What would I do if I didn't have to work for money? I was working full-time here in Toronto for about 40 grand a, grand a year, and I was ignoring my grad school student loans that were already north of 150,000 US dollars and growing by about $1,000 each month. After reading the book, I set up a cross-border banking account so that I could make regular loan payments. I found a second contract that brought my monthly income up to five or six K. I got up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning to work on my side contract before commuting 45 minutes across the city for my 9 to 5 job. I made a spreadsheet that would track my income, my expenses, the conversion rates, my loan payments, my monthly interest accrual, and then I dragged each of those numbers into the future to figure out when I might feasibly pay off my loans. I started to think that I could hustle my way out of debt and into early retirement. Just before I started the book, I had invested significant energy, as like four to five of you will know, into an alcohol-free, caffeine-free, dairy-free, grain-free diet that would clear up the eczema that covered my entire body. The diet did get rid of my rash, and it brought a new level of focus to my already type A brain. I channeled that focus into my spending habits. I was counting every nickel I spent, because the penny was already gone. <laughs> And I was always optimizing. Since I'd already stopped drinking or eating in restaurants, I spent most of my money on groceries in the TTC. I bought in bulk. I asked for a bike for my birthday. My friend Dan helped me make a currency speculation model to game the dismal conversion rate that had dropped below 80 cents on the dollar. Even with the diet and the budget, I was really busy. I had three different weekly volunteer commitments, and I brought liquid stevia to bars with me to make soda water more palatable. <laughs> One Saturday night, I brought almond butter snacks and celery sticks to Stefan's apartment for an impromptu poker night. I stayed up past 11 p.m. for the first time in months. When I walked out to the street cart with Paul, I started to black out as we left the building, and he turned around to find me crouched against a newspaper box waiting for my vision to come back. We got in a cab instead. Back home, 
I walked up the stairs on my hands and knees and fell asleep on top of my duvet with my winter coat still on because the buttons were too complicated for my addled brain. The next day I felt fine. Later I found out that lupini beans have more protein than any other bean. <laughs> Even more than soybeans. So I bought a pack of dried beans, lupini beans, at the Little Portugal No Frills across the street from my house, and I soaked and cooked them myself. I read online that the beans were inedibly bitter at first, so I need to soak them for at least a week and then change the water every 12 hours or so. <laughs> it was a small price to pay for early retirement. <laughs> I was going to use the beans in my optimized lunchtime salad, which is beans for protein, plus miso for probiotics, and red onions for prebiotics, <laughs> lemon for flavor, and then whatever green veggie was on sale. After a week of soaking, the beans were still a little bitter, but I decided to try them anyway. I ate half my salad, and my stomach started to bother me a little, but, you know, it's fine. Half an hour after that, my pupils were dilating. I had trouble reading the screen at my desk, and I went out into the hall to Google how to prepare lupini beans on my phone because, the, you know, it's getting a little bit blurry. It turned out that if you prepared them wrong, they could be poisonous. Um, so I called poison control, who didn't really know what I was talking about. <laughs> but I also may have been too high to understand their advice. <laughs> Everything that I read online made me paranoid that I was about to die, so I asked Adam to Google it while I just waited quietly. According to an article on Vice about lupini beans, <laughs> it was going to wear off in a few hours. So I went back to my desk and I pretended to do whatever a managing editor did if they weren't accidentally very high. <laughs> I waited till the rest of the beans lost their bitterness because the cost to protein ratio was still too good to pass up. <laughs> One, mor one morning after biking to work, I blacked out on my desk and I called Adam to pick me up. I started to nap every day when I got home. It became clear that the exchange rate wasn't going to get any better. So Adam and I planned a San Francisco sabbatical. We thought three months, six months, a year in California would be a good opportunity to earn American dollars and do all of the lifestyle things that should heal the burnout that I seem to be experiencing. I was working as an editor for an urban Toronto spin-off site, and I began working remotely. Without the external pressure of the office, I discovered that my body wanted to sleep 10 to 12 hours each night and nap for two to three hours each day. And even when I was awake, it was hard for me to focus. Sometimes I'd ask Adam to read articles for basic typos after I'd edited for content. I was still earning Canadian dollars and I didn't want to look for a new job until I could confidently stay awake for the entire work day. Somewhere in the middle of my rigorous sleep schedule, Adam and I decided to get married. And then after my nap one day, we were FaceTiming with his parents in Boston and they told me that they wanted us to start our married life in the black. They were meeting with their accountants soon to find the optimal tax way to pay off my student loans in the next six months. I was floored. I'm still floored. Our San Francisco sabbatical was working out in unexpected ways. Four months after we arrived, 
I made the final payment on my loans, even if I hadn't hustled my way there. And Adam and I started running after eight sleepy, slovenly months. I found two contracts that would pay me in real American dollars. And after nine months in California, I was awake enough every day to take a job with a consistent schedule outside the house. I was teaching kids to use design software and to prototype with laser cutters and 3D printers. It was only part-time, but after two weeks, I was already starting to plan nap breaks in my day again. During, during our 10th month in California, I made a trip back to Toronto to handle some wedding planning details. I was living on the edge a little at that point, drinking wine and caffeine and eating gluten. And when I got back to California, I woke up exhausted with a pain in my lymph nodes. I'd lean on the wall with both hands to move from the bed to the couch, and I'd call out for Adam to hold my shoulders and help me get to the bathroom during the day. Sometimes there was vertigo, like I was on a boat. If I left any part of my body unsupported, I would tremble. It got better for a month, and then it got worse. Almost a year after we arrived in California, I stopped working completely because the tremble in my hands sometimes made editing difficult, even on my own schedule, even from the couch, even though I didn't know what was wrong. So now, I don't wake up to an alarm that often these days. If I slept poorly the night before, then I wake up with a throbbing pain in my lymph nodes and I read my phone until Adam wakes up and makes coffee for both of us. And if I slept well, then I put the kettle on myself and I lie down on the couch until it starts to whistle. Either way, I take my coconut latte with MCT oil and collagen peptides and like a little stevia and cinnamon while lying down because most days my body starts to tremble if left unsupported for too long. If I stand for more than five minutes, my heart will start to race and I'll start to sweat from the exertion. On good days, I take my curatorial energy from years of editing and I round up articles and essays that explore different social justice concepts and I post them on Facebook, on Medium, on Twitter. Adam cooks me lunch because I usually can't stand for long enough to prepare my own food, but I'm convinced that I must eat local vegetables and meat to prevent things from getting worse. On sunny days, I take a book to the hammock in our backyard for fresh air and vitamin D. And when I can't tolerate lying down anymore, I smoke pot that Ease has delivered to us and I turn on Netflix to make the time go by. For the first time in my adult life, I don't have any debt. For the first time in my adult life, I'm getting a glimpse of what I might do if I didn't have to work for money. Thank you. Subscribe to the Stories We Don't Tell podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the podcast, blog, and live events, find us on Facebook or visit storieswedonttell.org. This episode of the Stories We Don't Tell podcast is brought to you by Nightwatch 2017, the film that is never going to theaters.